Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. John 2 verses 2 to 12. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants knew who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Hi everybody, it's really great to see you. Uh, my name is Howard. I'm the pastor here at Westminster chapel and everyone is welcome in our church family. You're here for week four of our Amazing Love series. Um, It is an in-depth look at John's first century biography about the person of Jesus Christ. And it is an invitation to joy. Welcome to joy is the theme of this message. The whole of this story, this biography is an invitation that you would know God, but not only know God, but be known by God. God yourself. God. What is the first thought that comes into your head about him? The idea, the very concept of God. What's the first thing, the first ideas that come into your head when I say the name God? What what, what do you think there? There's a pastor, he's called A.W. Tozer. He said that the most important thing about a person is what they think first about God. So what do you think about God? But not on your best day, not on your best Christian behavior, giving me the well-rehearsed sort of response that's there, but on your worst day, when you're at your absolute bottom, when you're really struggling with life, what are the first thoughts that come into your mind about God? I wonder if any of these memes spring to mind. It may not be a thought, perhaps it's a question. Where is God? Is he cruel? Does he care? Is he mean? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Where is he when life seems like it's falling apart? Hold that. There's another person who had a slightly different way of thinking. His name is Professor C.S. Lewis. Now, it's not that either are necessarily wrong. They're just different perspectives. Now, he is an atheist who became a Christian. He's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he said this, How we think of God is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. 
it is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses to actually survive that examination shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work or as a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Wow. God is love and he loves you. God is joy, and if you believe in Him, He delights in you. The question is, do you really know that? Do you? You see, because there's knowing and there's knowing, right? There's head knowledge and there's a heart knowledge. Now, the best way for me to explain this to you is to read a little bit from the script of the film, A Good Will Hunting. It's an Academy Award-winning film. Maybe you've seen it. It's a little bit old these days. Um, but the main character, he's called uh, Will. And he's a 20-something genius. He's played by Matt Damon. And he has to go to see a psychiatrist or go to prison. The psychiatrist is played by Robin Williams. He's called Sean. And At their first meeting, they have a horrible argument, and it gets physical between them. Why? Well, it's because Will has read all the right books on art criticism, and he arrogantly presumes then to critique and know everything about the painter of a painting, which is actually painted by Sean on the wall. But what Will didn't know is that Sean had painted this painting whilst his wife was going through and dying of cancer. Then they get together on the following day, and they meet on a park bench, and Sean says this. I was thinking about what you said to me the other day, about my painting. I stayed up half the night thinking about it, and then something occurred to me, and I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep. Do you know what occurred to me? You're just a boy. Think our own spiritual maturity. So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him, life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling, been there, seen that. I ask you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friend. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth here just for you and could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel and to have that love for her and be there forever through anything, through cancer. You don't know about real loss because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. 
God wants you to really know him. Not just to know stuff about him. Facts, information, verses that you can recall. He wants you to have a relationship with him. To experience him. To encounter him. This, I believe, is one of the reasons why God in Jesus Christ chooses for his first miracle sign to turn water into wine. Why? Because wine isn't something you just read about in books, right? If any of you have ever tasted wine, you know it does something to you. You feel it in your throat. It's a bit different to anything else that you've drunk. And you feel it going down your system, and it starts to go to your head, and you get giddy with some kind of joy, right? That's the point, isn't it? We're meant to get giddy with joy over God's love and forgiveness. So this passage, which is this gospel, is an invitation to know God, to know certain things about Him. Many Christians, I believe, and I would hope, although we would say, I want to know Him more in these areas, we would say, I know God is a good Father, right? Number one, good Father, yes. What about number two? He's an almighty King. Yes, I get that. He's in rulership. But what about number three? A loving husband. Does that make you feel awkward? Uncomfortable, maybe? I don't hear many Christians meditating on that. But let me remind you that this miraculous sign, the first of Jesus' signs, happens at a wedding, happens at a marriage. Now, yesterday we were celebrating marriage, and generally in the church we think quite highly. We love marriage. It's a wonderful thing. But not everybody in our society feels that way about marriage. I heard of a film director called Vidor King who says, marriage isn't only a word, it's a sentence. (laughs) Some of you got that. (laughs) As a joke about the three rings, that there are three rings when it comes to marriage and weddings. The first is the engagement ring. The second is the wedding ring. And then along comes the third, the suffering. (laughs) You like that one a bit more, hey? (laughs) Now, there are people out there who believe that that's a picture of the Christian faith. That Christianity is nothing but an oppressive straitjacket of suffering. We'll get onto that to explain why I don't think that's true. But there are others who are so enamored by the very idea of marriage, who wouldn't necessarily call themselves believers, that they sought to redefine the very definition of what it means to be married so they can have the prize of calling themselves married rather than being in a civil partnership. There's something special and appealing and attractive about this whole idea of marriage, this exclusive commitment of real love. Why? Why? Well, it's because God has made it significant. God has filled it with meaning because it expresses how he wants to relate to his people. There are so many examples of this through the scriptures. One would be Hosea, the prophet Hosea, towards the end of the, New, the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. And God asks this prophet to be the personification of himself and to go and take back an unfaithful wife and to marry her. And he speaks with language of alluring and enticing her. Though she's unfaithful and she represents the people of God, you and me, God is going out wooing, draw her back in. I want her to know and call her what? I want you to call me my husband. Wow, provocative language. Jeremiah in the new covenant that he's promising. The language there where he says God's going to write the laws on our hearts. 
It's the language of God being referred to as a husband. As a husband. Fast forward just one chapter from John chapter 2. We get to John chapter 3. And Jesus himself is going to be described as the bridegroom. The ultimate bridegroom. The ultimate husband. And the church is going to be called the bride. Now why am I sharing this with you? It's because it charges this passage with massive significance of what's happening at the wedding at Cana. Note as well, it's at Cana. A first century geographically accurate description of a place. Now, just to point out, you had to be there in the first century, uh, know that place really well to get that kind of geographical detail right. But think about this yourself. Why would Jesus choose this miracle to be his first miracle, his first sign? What would you do if you were announcing your ministry, your deity to the world? Well, personally, this is how I would do it. I would pretty much want to walk on water straight away (laughs) and then immediately go raise some dead people. Massive, big opening. Wow, everybody, look at me. I've arrived. Aren't I impressive? But not Jesus, right? That's really interesting. Because if this was written by human human beings alone, then that's what you'd expect to find. But it's not. It shocks us. It surprises us because it's the revelation of God himself. And it's the revelation of his glory we're going to read about. Verse 11, the glory of God, the outshining of his true nature and his true character. So there are three things I believe he wants you to know. And therefore to know then out of those characteristics how he thinks about you because that's what he's like. And then we'll look at three application questions. And these three things are really important because... Evil is real in the world. There is evil out there. Satan is real, and he's always trying to put an ugly mask over God's face. Whether you realize this or not, he's always trying to make you think less of God than God actually is. There's a constant battle that you're in. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden right at the beginning to, to Adam and Eve. The modus operandi, the way of the enemy is exposed because what does he do? He wants to make God look mean miserable. He's withholding some good things from you. He's not a good God. You can't trust him. It's the constant battle. So we need Jesus' help to destroy these deceptions. So here's, here's the first one. The truth is, God is joyful, not miserable. He's a God of awesome joy. Right at the outset, this is what Jesus, God, is coming to do. Say all those people who think he's mostly mad or sad have got it wrong. He's mostly glad. This is what he's like. You've misunderstood completely. He is the God who's come to say, I want you to know right from the beginning that I am the wellspring, the source of joy. I am at a wedding party and that's going to stop. So I don't want that to happen. I want the party to continue to let the joy keep flowing because that's his nature in being. There's also another thing that's going on here, that he doesn't want this family who are hosting the wedding to experience shame, who are possibly too poor to have enough wine to provide at this wedding, and to not be hospitable in this ancient uh, time and in that part of the world was so shameful. And Jesus didn't want that to happen for them. So he performs this extraordinary miracle, and it's a partial 
fulfillment, a little trailer fulfillment of what's been spoken about coming through the Scriptures all the way to this point, which helps us to understand the meaning and the significance of what's going on. So we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Now, if you've been following in the series, you'll know that we've said that John is kind of underlaying Isaiah, particularly through this gospel. He's constantly, either directly or indirectly, referring to this great prophet of the Old Testament. And here he's linking to this passage. On this mountain, we might say the Mount of Crucifixion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. What is it? He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears, all sorrow, sadness, suffering, grief from all faces. He will remove the disgrace, the shame of his people for their sins from all the earth. This is what the Lord is saying. It's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. This glorious future that is coming. It's being trailered here in Jesus' miracle at the wedding at Cana. You get a down payment, but you'll taste it in full in that one glorious day. It's the eternal wedding feast of joy that awaits every believer. It's amazing. And this is highlighted as well by John saying that all this is happening on the third day. Every detail that John writes is significant. On the third day the third day. That's how verse 1 of chapter 2 begins. On the third day, the third day had become a significant motif or language reference point that hyperlinks back to lots and lots of other ideas in the Old Testament so that the richness of the meaning when you say on the third day has with it all of the significance of the past of what's coming, that there's some liberation breakthrough that's coming. You see, it's significant that it was on the third day that God provided a ram, a lamb substitute in the place of Isaac so that Isaac would not have to be sacrificed by his father, Abraham. God provided. You can trust him. It was on the third day that Joseph released his brothers from prison. And reconciliation and restoration can go, go about in that family. It was on the third day that the people of God crossed over the river Jordan and entered in to take possession of the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. Free from oppression and slavery and now living in freedom for the glory of God. It was on the third day that Queen Esther began her plan to save her people from destruction. It was on the third day that Jonah was vomited out of the belly of the big fish to go and preach to a pagan city of Nineveh to see hundreds and thousands of people respond and come to faith. Freedom, rescue. And it is, of course, on the third day that Jesus was raised from the dead and presented himself so impressively to his followers that they were willing to die for him because they'd seen that he had defeated and overcome death. Jesus himself is going to refer to this in verse 19 of this very chapter. He's going to be in the temple at this point, cleansing the temple. 
and they're going to challenge him about what he's doing. And Jesus is going to say to them, I tell you, this temple will be destroyed, but it will be raised in three days' time. They don't, how does this make sense? They, they don't understand what he's saying. They think, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. How could you raise it in three days? What are you talking about? They totally misunderstood. He's not talking about the physical building, the temple, but himself. He's the temple. You went to the temple to do what? To meet with God. Now God is walking amongst you. The living temple. I wonder if this is why John deliberately joins these two stories together in chapter 2. People have struggled to make sense of that for, for decades. What are they doing together? Well, surely it's about that God is pouring out new wine. But the old covenant and the old temple can't contain what he's doing. This third day principle is about resurrection life. It's about liberation. It's about freedom. It's about hope. It's about all that is disappointing, all that is discouraging, all that associates itself with death, being overcome and broken free of. It's about liberation and joy and festivity. But there's more because it's not just the third day. It also happens to be the seventh day. John wants to make both of these points. Now, if you're really geeky and you've got your um, John's scripture journal, which we've given away free, and there's more copies if you want them, it's just so interesting that on page seven of that in the introduction, it describes this as being the seventh day. And that's because, as you can see on the slide, that day one begins on verse 23. And then you get to verse 29, and it says the next day. Then you get to verse 35, and it says the next day. Then you get to verse 43, and it says the next day. And then we're into chapter 2, verse 1, and it's on the third day. And you guessed it when you add all of those up. It's the seventh day. John is deliberately linking us back right to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 again. And that's how he began the gospel, isn't it? Shouldn't be surprised about that. In the beginning was the Word, he began, and the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. He's linking us right back to Genesis chapter 1, to the creation story, and to the seventh day. The day on which God rested, and also rejoiced in all that he had made. Have you ever noticed, though, that the days of creation are paired that the whole of the creation account is about complementary pairings coming together. Have you seen that before? So that day one, which is the creation of light, is matched with day four, which is the creation of the light bearers, sun, moon, and stars. Day two, which is the creation of the, the seas and the fish, sorry, the seas and the sky, is then matched by day five, which is the creation of, of the fish for the seas and the birds for the skies. And then you're into day three, which is the creation of land and plants, which is then matched by the creation of animals on day six, who are going to roam the land and eat the plants. But what about day seven? God is always working in complementary pairs. What is the pair of day seven? Who is paired for God? Because that's his day, the day that he rests. Well, that's the great invitation. It's for us. The seventh day is the pairing between us and God. 
there's a long line of Jewish thought that would say that the Sabbath, the seventh day, is to be seen as our mate in the same way that Eve was Adam's mate. It's an invitation to intimacy. It's an invitation to completeness, that we are completed through our relationship with God. It's an invitation to joy. It's a a wedding feast. It's a communion with the Lord. It's a feast of festivity and happiness and life. Because this is the invitation that we're being invited into, is to know him, to be the bride to his bridegroom, to be the bride to his husband, to be the wife to his husband. That's the, that's the pairing. That's the match. That's the, the call of Scripture since it began, that you get to be part of. Our God is a God of joy. He wants to keep the party going. He created parties, festivals throughout the Old Testament. And all the way into the new Passover to Pentecost. That's his heart. My question is though, do you know him? Do you know him like that? Is he really a God of joy in your life? Is that really the primary way that he he is in his being to you? Is he the God of joy? That's the first point. The second point is... God is generous, not mean. He's extraordinarily generous. It's not one but six stone jars that get filled. Notice that they are filled to the brim with water, absolutely maxed out. And Jesus turns that water into Chateau Margaux wine. Probably not, but. The best wine was saved to last. Now, if you want to do your sums, this works out at between 600 and 1,000 bottles of wine. Just for sake of comparison, um, I didn't actually count how many bottles of wine that they had at the wedding yesterday. I thought that would be awkward. But at our wedding, we only had 20 bottles of wine. Just for sake of comparison, right? 600 to 1,000 versus 20. This is insane. What is God saying? It's a deliberate, provocative act on the part of God to say, wake up, hello, I am abundantly generous. This is my nature. Just pours it out. And you're going to see this again and again and again throughout this gospel. God wants you to get, get, get us across. He's not mean. He's not miserable. He's not holding stuff back from you. He's generous. Feeding of the 5,000, that's just the men, by the way. We count women and children, might be 20,000 people. And John, the writer, is really keen for us to know that there are 12, 12, 12 baskets full left over. There's surplus. Wow. Right at the end of the gospel, you get this miracle of fish. They even count them. It's so many, they want to count them. This is such a crazy, phenomenal miracle. There's 153 fish. Now that's back in the time before you got all the technological development and all that stuff that's going on that we've got today in our fishing. This was crazy. All they needed was enough for a little breakfast, right? They got a surplus and fish equals money. This is like, whoa, what kind of God does this? And then it says in terms of forgiveness, he's generous. Again and again and again, he'll forgive 70 times 7. The whole point of that is not like that's the absolute number and if you go beyond that, you're toast. The point of that is, isn't it? It's just 
There's so much. I just want it's the perfect number. 70 times 7. That's the whole it's just never ending. Which leads to the final point. God is forgiving, not condemning. It's very significant these aren't any ordinary stone jars. Specifically says they're jars for ceremonial cleansing. For the Jewish rites of ritual purity. When you add that then to verse 11, which says that this is a sign, a lived out parable about the reality of who Jesus is and what he's like, what he's come to do. The wine, of course, speaks of his blood that will be shed at the cross for the forgiveness of sins, to cleanse us from our shame that he will then go and act out in a meal that he will say do this in remembrance of me so that we would remember the wine and drink the wine which symbolizes his blood but this leads me to perhaps the trickiest verse of this passage verse 4 where Jesus says woman what has this got to do with me my, my hour has not yet come it's really cryptic, isn't it? A bit confusing. What's going on here? Whenever I feel like well, I'm a little bit unsure, I always go and find out, gosh, what does Tim Keller think? <laughs> um, that's so helpful here. He would say, think about two things in particular. The first of those is Jesus' singleness. What do most people honestly do at a wedding? I think if you're anything like I was at a wedding, you do a couple of things. I think firstly you feel one really, really uncomfortable if you're single at a wedding. That was me. I am an introvert. I'm like, oh no, who am I going to talk to? Right. Which table are they going to sit me on and awkwardly try and match me with one of their friends again? Oh, I'm going to have to go through that and make conversation. That's going to be really strange and weird. Are they going to have a disco and a dance at the end? Oh, no, I can't dance. It's going to be so uncomfortable. And you're like, oh, I don't really want to be here. So awkward. All of that. So once you've got all of that out, I think then what you do at a wedding is you're like, you start to maybe dream or think about what your own wedding might be like in the future. And surely that's what Jesus is doing here. Surely he is looking ahead to his own wedding. And then we add that to the second thing that we need to think about, which is this phrase, my hour has not yet come. What is this hour? What does he mean by that? Well, if you continue to read through John's gospel, this phrase will come up again and again and again. And every time as it comes up, it, it points to Jesus' death on the cross. My hour, my time to die for the sins of the world, it has not yet come. That hasn't come, but he's saying, I can trailer it now, though. I can give sort of a down payment, an anticipation. I can point towards it with a little sign of what's coming. At this wedding, Jesus is thinking about his own wedding and the price that he's going to have to pay to make that wedding possible. The ultimate dowry price, the ultimate bride price, 
the shedding of his own blood to atone, to cleanse us from sin, from all of your wrongdoing, all the wrong things you've said, thought, and done, all the good things you should have done, but you didn't do. It's the price you have to pay to beautify the bride, to be fitting and worthy of his holy, awesome, and almighty self. I love the way that Tim Keller's mentor, Ed Clowney, puts this. He says this, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. How do we know this joy? How can you experience this joy? I want to give you three ways. The first of those is to admit that you're empty. A moment of real honesty, just humility before God, that your joy is going or it's gone. It's very understandable in this pandemic season, people are wearied, exhausted, burnt out, that your spiritual joy is gone or it's very low, or it was never there. Just a moment of being real with God. And it might help you actually to tell somebody else, tell, tell another believer. There's no, there's no shame in this. It's just a reality check. The entrance point. In the same way that there was a recognition that the wine had run out of this wedding, that you have to recognize that the wine has run low or run out in your life. That's the first thing. But there's a great promise attached to that. Jesus will say in John chapter 7, all who are thirsty, all who are spiritually thirsty, come to me and drink. And streams of living water will flow from within you. Wow. What a promise. Joy. Joy. He drunk the cup of wrath, the punishment you deserve so you can drink the wine of joy. But you've got to recognize your need. You've got to acknowledge, I need this. I need more of him in my life. That's the first thing. The second thing is to take all the credit. It's a really interesting thing in this passage that um, the master of the ceremonies uh, gets to taste the wine. He's like, the best wine. And he goes to the bridegroom and says, thank you so much. Normally, they bring out the cheap stuff at this point because no one's going to notice because they're a bit sozzled or whatever. But you saved the best till last. Wow. And he gives all the credit to the bridegroom. The bridegroom's like, well, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Jesus did the miracle. The bridegroom gets the credit. Jesus does the miracle. We're meant to take the credit. He's expecting you to take all the credit for what he does on the cross for you. He wants you to take all the spoils of salvation, which he won for you on the cross, and to receive it, to take the credit, to take the righteousness he offers you. Not to try and offer him something back, not to try and offer him something, pay for something, earn something. No, you're meant to take all the credit. It's a, you've got to swallow your pride before you can swallow the wine. And say, I can't do that. I, I need it. I need it. It's only he can save me. Only he can make me a new creation. Only he can turn water into wine. Will he do that? Here's the third thing, the final thing. Is do what Jesus says. Simple obedience. You want to know joy? Obey him. Obey him. 
That's what the servants did. They were definitely outsiders. But Jesus deliberately makes insiders. The outsiders, the poorer people serving on this day, he wants them to be the insiders. And they became insiders, how? Because they did what Jesus said. You want us to do what? You want us to fill with water? That's ridiculous. That's for, that's for purification. It's not going to make wine. We're not going to make wine out of that. What are we doing here? Sometimes Jesus is going to ask you to do things that don't make sense. But your call is to obey him. To obey him. They become the conduit for the miracle. They get to see something of the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God because they are willing to obey him. What could God do through your life if you consistently obey him again and again and again and again? I believe it would be something along the lines of John chapter 14, verse 12. Even greater things than these, Jesus promises, will his followers do than he did on earth. Even greater things. What could God do through you? through us, if we really obey him. We're called at Westminster Chapel to be a church that turns water into wine. In our culture, in our society, that is about an extraordinary, joyful, life-giving transformation. There is new wine that God is pouring out in this season. And it's a new wine to know him. It's a new wine about a depth of intimacy. It's a new wine about going deeper in our relationship with God. To really experience the full reality of who he is. What he's like. What he's done for us. So we can trust him. Truly love him. And then truly live for him. And that brings joy. You see, these three points that I made, they could really be summed up like this, that if you want to drink the wine of joy, you've got to abide in the vine that is Christ. Jesus is the true vine. Really interesting language, John 15. He's the source of the wine. You want to know that? You want to know joy? You want to drink the wine that that makes you just overwhelmed with happiness about him? Then you abide with him. Will you remain with him? Will you stay with him? Will you make time to be still and be known by him? Will you put your head, as we've been saying, on Jesus' chest? Like John, here is heart for you, for this world. If you do that, you'll know joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's in knowing him and being known by him, being held by him that we know joy. And joy, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said before from this pulpit, joy is the key to revival. Joy, he would say, is the reason why the church wasn't advancing in the way that it should have been in his day. The absence of joy. We can't work this up, but we can drink it up because it's available in Christ. And when the church comes alive with a joy which is not of this world, It transforms this world. It bubbles over and it impacts and it touches people's lives. So we're going to make time in this service right now for you to drink, for you to encounter, for you to respond.
What might it look like for you? Where are you at? Are you a 10, 11, overflowing with joy? You down below, zero, one, two? I don't know. Where are you at? Just a moment, just to be honest with God. And then let's stand. We're going to pray. We're going to respond in worship. But we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. So if you're comfortable with this, I would just invite you now just to put your hands out, just be in a posture to receive. God is here. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to drink the wine. He wants to pour out His Spirit upon you to fill you with joy. So we're just going to invite Him to come. Father and Son, we thank You that You've sent the Holy Spirit to fill us who believe in you with joy. Lord, we ask that you take away all wrong ideas about you right now. Destroy them. Lord, that you're not miserable, you're not mean, that you're not condemning. Your heart is to save. You are full of joy. You are full of abundance. You're the God who seeks to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. And we're asking that right now in this moment. I pray for people who have felt depressed and discouraged as a result of this pandemic, of people who feel just constantly tired and weary and worn out and laid low by life. Lord, we're asking, let the joy of the Lord come. We're hungry and we're thirsty. And Lord, you said if we come to you and drink, then you'll let streams of living, joyful, happy water flow from within us. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. We need you. We can't save ourselves. Only you. Only you. In these moments as we worship, pour out the joy of the Lord. That the joy of the Lord, your abundant generous forgiveness would be our strength. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.